While the world of work struggles with in-person or online that question, consider this. Groups generate more and better quality ideas when they meet in person than when they meet on video conference. That's according to research by the Columbia Business School in an experiment with 1,500 engineers. Does that mean you've got to haul it back into the office every day at a federal agency? Well, not so fast, says Bob Tobias, a professor in the key executive leadership program at American University. He joins me now face-to-face in studio, (laughs) ironically. Tell us about this study because it really was very in-depth on human interaction in the personal conference room setting versus the Zoom teams, you name it, type of setting. They did some fascinating research. They put in multiple cameras to measure reactions, to measure vision. And the thing that was interesting to me is they said, quote, if your vision field is narrow, then your opinion is likely to be narrow as well. And what they were saying is that if you're looking at a Zoom screen, it seems to circumscribe your ability to be creative because you're so focused on that little screen. Whereas in a conference room or in a meeting room, you're more relaxed, you're looking around the room, and you're able to generate more creative ideas. And I think the other thing is that a lot of people simply don't like looking at themselves talking. And I encounter this all the time with video interviews. Some people say, do you mind if I turn the camera off because I just don't like looking at myself? And therefore, that implies, I think, that people are not focusing on the ideas and the project so much as focusing on the weird details of these multi-panel screens. So if people are focusing only on the screens and are uncomfortable looking at themselves, they're distracted. Creativity requires that I'm free of anything else but just trying to create something new, generate a new idea, plant a new seed. And so if I don't like looking at myself on Zoom, that's going to distract me. Makes sense. Well, then, is the logical conclusion that people should return to their agencies and get to work, physically to their agencies in the office, I should say? Well, what this study was about was non-supervisory included teams, self-managed teams, rather than a team headed up by a supervisor. And I think that makes a total amount of difference because, as we know, there are some supervisors who are command and control and who could care less about receiving creative ideas. There are some supervisors who recognize that they're not so good at running a meeting, asking for people to generate creative ideas. And so I think what's missing with this idea about creativity is training leaders, giving them leadership development opportunities so they can actually conduct meetings where creative ideas are generated. Yes, I think most managers, in my experience working very long time, is they tend to try to dominate a meeting. In many ways, their correct role is to moderate it, but let the ideas flow and basically shut up. But a lot of them actually Bigfoot meetings and therefore close down creativity. Well, I think that those leaders who actually generate creative options are those who create a trustworthy environment where people are safe to generate off-the-wall ideas that may or may not work, where people learn from each other as they're generating creative ideas. But supervisors don't 
automatically have those kinds of skills necessary to develop that. And there's another study that was completed not so long ago that showed that about 50% of black knowledge workers um, who were uh, working at home report a 50% boost in their sense of belonging once they started working from home because they weren't subject to exclusions and smirks and microaggressions. So these are folks who don't want to come back unless they're coming back to an environment that's open and inclusive, which again requires leadership development. We're speaking with Bob Tobias, a professor in the key executive leadership program at American University. So there seems to be then two possible conclusions. And the first one is the hybrid mode of people in the office when that's indicated and working at home when perhaps just toiling away on a project is indicated should be the mode. It should not be 100% telework or 100% everybody back into the pen, but the way it's operating now should be managed better. Yes, I think so, Tom. And, you know, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey made that pretty clear. The largest drop in employee engagement and satisfaction reported by the Partnership for Public Service, 4.5 drop, occurred just last year, which to me indicates a problem with leadership in agencies. Right. And an echo of that is that the worst engagement scores were for the 30 to 39-year-old cohort, the very heart of you know your staffs and your future development of leadership, whereas it was highest in the 60 and older, and I presume 60 and way older. Well, you know, that 30 to 39 age group is critically important to the federal sector because that's where the future leaders are. That's where they're developing or not developing. That's where they're engaged or not engaged. That's where they're thinking about leaving or staying. And if you're not engaged with that group, you've made a great hole in the managerial pool of the future. And this gets back to a theme you and I have discussed before, and that is the need for leadership training development, I guess kind of what you do for a living, but then to make these supervisors that are presumably in their 40s, 50s, and even 60s still, if they stick around, such that they can foster the engagement of people who are going to be there sometimes, not going to be there physically sometimes, but how can they be engaged all the time and therefore get that score back up? That's a fact, Tom. I mean, it isn't about skills training. Agencies provide a lot of skill training to supervisors and upper-level managers, upper-level leaders, but very little personal development, which is what I'm advocating for. The idea that I really would know myself better so that I could lead a group and create a collaborative environment. It's not automatic that I have that skill, especially if I've grown up in a command and control environment. Not so long ago at a graduation at one of the key programs, one of the student presenters said, "Um, you know, I'm 26 years in the Marine Corps. And I love command and control, and I loved command and control. And then I came to work for the federal government and could not figure out how to make my way because command and control didn't work for me. But when I attended this program, this key program, I learned how to create a collaborative trusting environment. Interesting. Yes. Many years ago, I worked for a former Marine, and his command and control was pretty much in the pen. He didn't use it very much. 
once in a great while he would say, look, this is how it's got to be, and everybody, okay, great. But most of the time he let people flourish with their own ideas and therefore enjoyed enormous respect. And sometimes as a boss you do have to say, sorry, this is the way it's got to be. But that should be used sparingly, and when it really matters, every hill is not to die on. That's correct. And, you know, this guy was truly troubled because he'd been so successful in one environment but not successful in another environment. But to his credit, he sought how to change his behavior to be more successful in the federal sector. So it's possible. It is always possible to change, Tom, even for us old guys. All right. Bob Tobias is a professor in the Key Executive Leadership Program at American University. As always, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive wherever you are. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play- baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her. I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there are so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. 
um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do, where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of the Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current, uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, 
confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Ladies and gentlemen, we need you. The Benevolent and Protective Order of Elks is looking for you to help support veterans, help with youth scholarships, and be a force in your community. Being a member of the Elks is where you can do all this and much more. We are 31 lodges strong across the state of Iowa. Help pass on our principles of charity, justice, brotherly love, and fidelity. If interested, go to elks.org and use the lodge locator to find a lodge near you. Elks care. Elks share. Brought to you by the Iowa Elks Association.